Banter. Banter's terrible. I hate being on the cold open. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we've got our uh, White House reporter, Andrew Prokop, and uh, Tara Golsham, who covers uh, congressional Republicans mostly. And that is a great pair to talk about Donald Trump's relationship with congressional Republicans. It's hard for a lot to really happen while Congress is on recess, uh, but Trump is is nothing if not a, a news machine who uh, has generated through his his tweets and and rally remarks a um a surprising level of of intra party uh, dissension over the past the past week or two and I, I think uh, maybe Andrew can help help set us up with some of what what he's been saying and doing lately. So basically, while on this vacation, Trump has been stoking through uh, tweets, through public comments, and apparently also through private angry phone calls with uh, Republicans, uh, a sort of feud with Republican leaders in Congress and certain key Republican members of Congress who he is angry at for one reason or another. Uh, One of the most visible parts of this feud was when technically Mitch McConnell started the feud by uh, offering this sort of mild rebuke of Trump and saying at an event in Kentucky that he didn't have a ton of experience with things like legislation and his expectations were too high. Trump responded by going very nuclear against McConnell, criticizing him in a barrage of tweets. There was apparently an angry phone call, too, where he complained not only about the failure on healthcare, but also that McConnell hasn't protected him enough on the Russia investigation. So that is kind of like the main event here. But there have been a lot of subplots to this feud. Trump has been tweeting at Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, who wrote a book criticizing him. And Trump seems to be increasingly invested in the goal of defeating Jeff Flake in his primary next year. Then there's also... John McCain, who, of course, cast the deciding vote to stop the healthcare effort in July, and Trump has been stoking some grievances against him, too. So Trump, Trump actually flew to Arizona, where there's two Republican senators, both of whom he had some, some beef with, and he did, one could have used that occasion to try to patch things up, right? And like, stand alongside them and talk about how much they have in common. But Trump did did very much the opposite and criticized them in their home state to a Republican audience. He didn't criticize them by name on the stage. But then in case anyone had missed what he was talking about the next morning, he tweeted that uh, Jeff Flake was very bad and that uh, Arizona deserves better. Uh, And then there's a in the past couple of days, there's been another thread to this where Trump has been kind of griping about Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's legislative strategy. Generally, he tweeted that uh, he had the idea that a way to get a debt ceiling increase through would be to attach it to a very popular bipartisan uh, veterans bill that uh, he actually signed into law a few days ago, but that he complained that McConnell and Ryan wouldn't listen to his great idea. And so all of this together seems to be 
coming together in a, a sort of story where Trump uh, is at least positioning himself rhetorically as more and more critical of congressional Republicans and seems to be trying to both hit back against those who have criticized him and also blame some of them for his own legislative failures and the state that his presidency is in right now. There was there was also a tweet this morning, strange statement by Bob Corker, considering that he is constantly asking me whether or not he should run again in 18. Tennessee not happy, exclamation point. <laughs> well, that one's really interesting because a couple of days ago, we were talking about this and and somebody on our staff proposed the sort of half-joking theory that maybe Trump wants the Democrats to retake the Senate. Of course, that's would be very tough for Democrats to do next year. They ha- are defending so many more seats than Republicans are. And in, in fact, it's it's looked like there are only two Senate Republicans at serious risk of losing in 2018. And those are Dean Heller of Nevada and Jeff Flake of Arizona. So I said at the time, what what I would have to see to believe that Trump is really sort of self-destructive enough to try to be tanking his party's Senate chances is to go after some other Republican who's up next year who's not in any danger like Bob Corker and try to like pose political <laughs> problems to him. And then two days later, he's he's just done that. I Maybe mean, Trump again, just has a direct line into our slack. Yes, that, <laughs> he could be taking political advice from us. But I, this Cor- was provoked. Corker had hit him pretty hard, though, right? What did Corker say? McConnell, I felt like, had said something quite mild, you know, was like, well, you know, Trump is new to this and maybe had some elevated expectations. Corker said that Trump had not shown, like, the maturity and stability that the country needs from a president. Um, That's like a, you know, that's that's like an uppercut aimed at somebody. I don't really, I mean, I guess Corker said that because he thinks it's true. But when you're dealing with politicians who aren't Donald Trump, you're used to thinking of them as having you know, some kind of filter about what they're saying. I don't really know why Bob Corker, who does not appear to have any policy disagreements whatsoever with Donald Trump, would just like take a huge shot at him for no particular reason. Um, And it's been an interesting element of this is that so much of it is not really about anything. Um, McCain actually voted no on a major piece of legislation, sort of scuttled this process that had been going forward. He was, of course, joined by Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who have been spared uh, from criticism on this sort of most recent tour. Um, They're just considered lost causes. They're just, they're done, right. But like, that's a real issue, you know, that one could cajole or be angry about, uh, various other things. Um, Flake... Flake's book seems weird to me. Um, Bob Corker, I don't know what, like he said something mean about Trump. And he- but Corker was critical about the Charlottesville comments. So, right. I mean, that seems to be a, a matter of sort of principle. A lot of these Republicans were genuinely outraged by Trump's failure to condemn the sufficiently condemn the neo-Nazis and racist demonstrators so but apparently what's been happening with corker is that uh cable tv has been playing his comments a lot and perhaps uh, this was the day when trump finally saw those comments it, it's also kind of a a little bit of a breakdown of this dynamic that's been developing between trump and congressional republicans where i was talking to some some senate aides and some house aides and some campaign some a competitive senate race campaign aide and their whole idea of whenever there's some like fire in the White House or when Trump 
refuse to condemn neo-Nazis right away is that they will kind of distance themselves enough, but also kind of to insulate themselves from the, the political damage, but also enough that they will still be able to work with Trump. Um, and so that's, that's like the whole theory behind they kind of send their angry tweet or um, condemn his actions, but they still will work with him. But if Trump is kind of clapping back now, there's right. a breakdown there. that, that Right, exactly. I mean, that makes it harder to sort of be at arm's length, which has often seemed like where where politicians want to be. And it's it's interesting because it's starting to intersect more with the actual legislative agenda. Um, this this criticism about the debt ceiling attachment, you know, is a good example there. That was a that was not Trump smacking back at some clip he saw on Fox News. That was Trump really sort of Monday morning quarterbacking uh, the legislative strategy of, of Paul Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell in a fairly substantive way. Okay, uh, podcasts are great, you know, if you, you want you want to listen to something. Uh, but when you want to read, there's really nothing better in, in a lot of ways than a magazine. You know, it's a traditional form of journalism, and it's traditional because it's really compelling. Uh, but the magazine format itself, you know, can be a little bit old and stale, and, and that's where Texture comes in. Uh, Texture is the joint project from the publishers of all the leading magazines in America. They created this great app that has over 200 magazines full of in-depth stories and interviews all inside one app. They even have uh, recommendations. They have special video features. You could look at back issues all on your phone or, or your iPad. Uh, I, I like to use it on my iPad. It's, it's one of the best things to do with the sort of large screen of a tablet is, is replicate the magazine experience except without the giant stack of back issues uh, on your coffee table and, and weird things that you can't find. Um, it's a really great way to check out all the best that, that the magazine world has to offer uh, and they make it really easy. There's so many great titles out there. You can check out uh, Fast Company, uh, Rolling Stone, Better Homes and Gardens, uh, even uh, Canadian Business. If you're really interested in the world of Canadian business, that's how deep their sort of collection of things are. Uh, I really like Dwell about architecture, a great kind of visual experience, a break from the stuff I work on. And it's a searchable app Texture has. And so you mark what you like, you check out back issues, you see the bonus video content, and they even curate uh, specific articles and magazines just for you. Uh, or if you're getting it as a gift, they'll, they'll do it for the recipient. So normally it's $9.99 a month, which is a crazy offer if you think about it. $9.99 a month for over 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash weeds, you get a 14-day free trial. So why subscribe to like two magazines when you could have everything in the world on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less? It was a, a top 2016 iPad app. You can start your free trial now, download the Texture app. Uh, so what you need to do, 14-day free trial if you go to texture.com slash weeds. That's 14 days to try Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. Can you can you tell us, Tara, like what's what's the deal with, with the debt ceiling at this point? So we don't really know. I mean, everyone I talk to is like, yeah, we're not sure. We're going to come back in September from August recess and someone will tell us something. And they're pretty confident that it will it will happen, like they will raise the debt ceiling. Um, and it was interesting. So Trump basically tweeted that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan decided not to tie a clean debt ceiling raise to this veterans uh, affairs bill, which passed with bipartisan support um, right before they left for recess. And Trump signed into law last week. And Paul Ryan's response was, yeah, that was an option. There were reports of it in July, but the deadline ran up on us and we need to get it done. But 
Trump himself and his administration have been really kind of wishy-washy on what they want on on the debt ceiling. Now it seems like there's a consensus they want a clean debt ceiling raise. But for the past four months. And that means specifically that they would raise the debt ceiling without making any policy changes to spending in contrast to the conservative position that you should only – raise the debt ceiling if you get a lot of spending cuts to sort of right. make up for it. But, I mean, for the past five months, I mean, you you hear a different thing from different people in the administration of what they want, how they want to approach the debt ceiling, right? So, like, you had Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, saying, no, we should attach spending cuts to it. And then you have Steve Nukin saying, no, actually, I just want a clean debt ceiling. And Trump hasn't really articulated what he wants either way. Now, I guess he is saying... We want to clean debt ceiling. But what that does when you kind of sow confusion, it allows different factions of the Republican Party or the Democrats even to kind of stake their ground in in the policy. And I think, you know, it's, it's worth stepping back a, a little bit. I mean, the, the debt ceiling issue, this is this piece of legislative mechanics that traditionally had been a, a fairly routine kind of matter. Uh, normally, the out-of-party power, uh, the out-of-power party would maybe sort of complain and grumble about it and say, aha, this shows how irresponsible you are. Uh, but it would get get raised all the time. In, in 2011, this became a, a flashpoint where Republicans started talking about using it as leverage to force Obama to agree to spending cuts. The Obama administration um, semi welcomed that because they thought they could entrap Republicans into agreeing to tax increases. Uh, it wound up not working. Obama agreed to spending cuts. Uh, taxes were then increased after the 2012 election outcome anyway, because they were scheduled to go up anyway. Um, and this sort of like new possibility of the debt ceiling as a weapon of political warfare was then laying around uh, for the whole of Obama's second term, not really used again after that 2011 standoff. But so then the question rose, with Republicans completely running the show, what would be different this time? And I think a sensible administration would have just sort of from day one been like, hey, guys, like, we're going to do a budget, we're going to do spending bills, we're controlling things, we're going to work this out. We're just going to raise the debt limit because, like, we got to do it, get that off the table, and we can clear the calendar for real work. Uh, but the Trump administration was constructed in this slightly odd way where you had a number of people who, you know, Steve Bannon and that kind of populist anti-immigrant wing. You had a number of people like Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin who have sort of more mainstream business Republican views but don't particularly have uh, – ties to the Republican Party as an institution. And then you had guys like Mick Mulvaney who come from uh, – they have a sort of emotional affiliation with Trump because they were uh, – Outsiders. Outsiders and, and anti-establishment in the House. But the whole premise of the Freedom Caucus crowd was like extreme ideological rigor, which like was really not Donald Trump's premise. And that seems to have landed them in several months of like tangled statements from the White House as to what their position even was. And they've only recently really come around to the view that they that they want this clean increase. And it it makes it a little puzzling that they're fighting with Republican leaders because it seems like they actually all agree on this. Well, it's also worth noting that no one actually wants to hit the debt ceiling. No one will say that. 
the question is just whether what conservatives want to do with the threat of hitting the debt ceiling is to sort of use that as leverage to force spending cuts. They don't actually want to hit it. I, I think everyone kind of agrees that hitting it would cause some sort of economic calamity. So it's not like anyone is saying, let's hit the debt ceiling. Conservatives are just trying to make the argument that, well, we should sort of use this as leverage to ram through the spending cuts that we want to ram through. And now the Trump administration seems to be united around, that's not a good idea, let's not play chicken with this, and and let's just do a clean hike. And I think the role of Democrats is also interesting to note here, because in Obama's first term in 2011, this first big showdown, Republicans really tried to use this threat of hitting the debt ceiling as leverage against Obama. But Democrats do not, correct me if I'm wrong, Tara, but they do not seem to be, in my view, gearing up to use this to you know, extort anything from Trump in any way. What their demand or preference seems to be is just to do the clean hike and not to have the spending cuts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has already come out in favor of the clean hike. I think you're seeing you're seeing some the the Democrats are staying a little quiet on this just because the Republicans haven't come out with a proposal yet. And I'm sure you'll see a contingent of the Democrats saying, well, hey, we're not going to like we're not so keen on the idea of of just accepting this clean debt ceiling and then you guys are going to do a tax cut bill afterwards. It's going to blow up the deficit or whatever. But no one has come out being like, no, we're definitely going to to screw this over for you guys. And it's important to note here that um, like this needs 60 votes in the Senate. So the Republicans are going to need eight Democrats to get on board for this. So that really just does weaken the leverage of the conservative faction in this negotiation. I think um, from my conversation with them, conservatives are – they're going to try, obviously, to push for some kind of spending cuts, but they're well aware that at the end of the day, this is going to have to get Democrats on board. And usually that does not result in a lot of spending cuts. But this is where the the attaching of it to something like the Veterans Bill, I think, came in, right? I, I think it's very clear that if you connected this to another piece of legislation that Democrats were also going to vote for, uh, like the Veterans Bill, like probably the, the Defense Appropriations Bill, that Democrats will gladly accept that kind of linkage. Um, there's a lot of discomfort in the party with the idea of playing, uh, monkeying around with this. Leadership really does not like want to pick this fight. Most Democrats are not inclined to pick fights with leadership. So everybody would kind of go along with it. But I, I think there's concern among Republican leaders that they don't want to be seen as squeezing their own members in that kind of way, that, you know, attaching it to the veterans bill would have forced it would have put conservative members in a kind of awkward position and they didn't want to jam them up like that. But if you try to bring this up as a separate piece of legislation, right, and just say, here's a standalone clean debt ceiling bill and we are going to count on you know, 150 Democrats to vote for it, along with a handful of Republicans. I think there's going to be a problem with backbench Democrats with that 
strategy. Democrats don't certainly the party leaders don't seem like they want to have that fight. But there's a lot of, you know, grassroots animosity to Donald Trump. A lot of people feel very uncomfortable. A lot of people are not kidding around about like resistance on some level. And the sort of plan of having Democrats deliver all of the votes, I think is, is dicey. I mean, we'll see what happens, right? But it only takes one or two sort of like high profile Democrats to like go make the rounds in the media with some kind of reason for like why you shouldn't do that to start, you know, getting people kind of off the, the the debt ceiling bandwagon. And so I thought, I mean, not to say Donald Trump is like the greatest legislative genius of, of our time or anything, but there was a point to, I think, what he was tweeting about that veterans bill that like you could have shuffled this off uh, relatively quickly. At, at the same time, to have done that, Trump would have had to have been clear at the time that that's what he wanted them to do, not weeks after the fact. Uh, he seemed completely disengaged from the issue uh, back then and, you know, is ducking back in now with, uh, I don't know why. I mean, it seemed like he was bored. Yeah, it seemed, I mean, when reports were out earlier in the summer about the possibility of tying this to the, the VA bill, it, Trump's name was not attached to it at all. I mean, it was like, it was news to everyone that it was supposedly Trump's idea. Right. I mean, somebody said this. If there was definitely like stories like like deep in the weeds, Congress stories were like, maybe they'll do this. And then they didn't. Uh, nobody seemed enthusiastic about it. There was never like a follow up story where Trump was like, yes, you guys should definitely do that. <laughs> I bet they could have done it. Right. I mean, this is the kind of thing where like if that had somehow made it up onto Fox and Friends and Trump had started tweeting like this is a clever way to handle it. Like it would have been a clever way to handle it. But he, he didn't do that. And sort of ex post facto. And then he also, I, I mean, I do think this is all connected, but he was very much trying to cast the blame on both McConnell and Ryan for the fact that the healthcare bill didn't pass. And I think it's clear, conversely, that some of the post-Charlottesville sort of yelling at Trump from congressional Republicans is in part sublimated frustration over the fact that the healthcare bill didn't work out. Because the whole idea was that you know, whether they loved Donald Trump or not, was that having a Republican president in office was going to let them advance this expansive agenda. And the healthcare bill has really raised the question of like, maybe it won't let them advance an expansive agenda. Are you interested in elevating your sort of grooming routine into a real, a true, a grooming ritual? Because The Art of Shaving is pleased to announce their brand new bourbon-inspired collection in celebration of the highly anticipated new film, Kingsman The Golden Circle, which is in theaters September 22nd. Inspired by the, the Kingsman movie, the new Art of Shaving collection was thoughtfully created to celebrate the best of the modern gentleman. It, it combines a rich, woody base with a hint of vanilla. The bourbon amber scent evokes both heritage and tradition. It's got a blend of botanical ingredients and essential oils, pre-shaved formula is perfectly suited for men with tough beards. Formulated with skin conditioners and essential oils, the shaving cream helps hydrate and soften your beard hair for a close and comfortable shave. And blended with essential oils and moisturizers, the light and quick-absorbing aftershave balm hydrates and refreshes skin after shaving, leaving it feeling smooth. Uh, I've used a, a lot of uh, Art of Shaving products over the years. They make uh, really great stuff. And the Kingsman collection items are available to all Art of Shaving retail locations and online at theartofshaving.com. Uh, 
they're really excited about it. If you see the new movie Kingsman, The Golden Circle in theaters September 22nd, our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using promo code WEEDS. Uh, so, so to get this offer at any Art of Shaving products, go online to theartofshaving.com, use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer. Be sure to catch Kingsman, The Golden Circle in theaters September 22nd. So I interviewed um, political scientist Dave Hopkins recently. He runs a blog called Honest Graft, uh, which is really good. And he wrote a post yesterday, which was really interesting. He he basically posited that we are going to see or are likely to see more and more open conflict between Trump and congressional Republican leaders and certain key members, and that Trump is actually well positioned to win a fight against them. So I talked to Dave. You can – Read our um, our Q and A at Vox, and uh, it's under the headline uh, "Why Ryan and McConnell are more afraid of Trump than he is of them." And I thought that the core takeaway I had from talking to him was that the fate of congressional Republicans and their majorities is just so closely linked to Trump's own political fate that. It's really hard to see what they can do to hurt him that won't hurt themselves politically more and first because they're up for re-election before he is. Um, so if they draw more attention to the Russia scandal, that will only hurt their party's own chances in 2018. If they you know, start turning over more – stuff with Trump's businesses looking around for corruption that would also probably hurt the Republican Party in 2018. If they provoke Trump in any way to make him angry at them, that sows more division and hurts the Republican Party in 2018. So I I, I guess what I came away thinking was that in some ways, this is less about actually advancing a legislative agenda. I mean, they want to advance an agenda. Um, they can do that in various ways. It's happening on the regulatory front. It's happening with judicial appointments and so on. But, you know, I think that this is really more about fear on the part of the Republican Party and that the strategy that so many of them have arrived at to sort of try to pretend Trump's Twitter account doesn't exist, to stay on his good side uh, – it, it really is about fear because he could do so much to wreck their party's chances in 2018 and, and, and ruin their own political futures. I mean, and then conversely, there's a there's a lack of fear, right? I mean, the, the 2018 Senate map famously is just overwhelmingly tilted toward toward red states. And uh, I was looking yesterday at the, the latest sort of a decision desk HQ forecast for the House of Representatives election. And, you know, their model's not unimpeachable, but they were saying that based on current polling, you would expect House Democrats to get 54% of the vote, uh, which is a lot. That is a, a bigger than Obama won in 2008 or George H.W. Bush won in 1988, uh, but that with 54% of the votes, uh, Republicans would still hold a majority and it, it wouldn't even be that close. Uh, Democrats would get 47% of the seats with 54% of the vote. And so that just again means there's relatively few Republicans. It's like really, really, really just Dean Heller. 
um, and a, a handful of House members who are in the position of really plausibly needing to gain the support of people who of like Democrats, right? I mean, it's a, a classic electoral thing that like to win re-election in Missouri, Claire McCaskill is mostly going to just rely on the votes of Democrats. But some of the people Claire McCaskill is counting on to vote for her are people who voted for Donald Trump and not just people who voted for Donald Trump, like idiosyncratically, but people who voted for Mitt Romney, people who voted for John McCain. She has to convince them that she is in substantive ways like different from the mainstream of the Democratic Party and that they should like her as an individual and a, a unique kind of beautiful snowflake. And there are very few Republicans who are in that position. I, I think because of idiosyncratic Alaska-specific reasons, Lisa Murkowski kind of needs to be seen as a snowflake by her constituents. And you see it in her behavior, which has been like really quite uh, rogue on, on a number of issues. But they're just you know, there are a lot of Republican members who are quite safe and quite entrenched, but for whom having the whole party meltdown is like a really serious threat to their their agenda and their majority and their power. Um, and Trump has the advantage. I, I mean, the, the additional advantage Trump has in all of these dynamics is that it doesn't seem like he particularly cares that much uh, about these different kinds of things, right? That, and like, I think maybe he should care more than he does. I I think that if I was advising Donald Trump, I would say that a Democratic takeover of a House of Congress is probably the worst single thing that could happen to your presidency in the next year. You would just be dogged by constant subpoenas of every agency. Uh, there would be just digging under every dirt pile for every possible scandal. The Russia investigation would just – there would probably be some empowered congressional investigation that's going much further and, and much more aggressively than currently exists. Um, so I think the question of whether Trump sort of A, realizes that or – it's like maybe the midterms are still a year away, so maybe he figures that he can just kind of flex his muscles now, intimidate Jeff Flake and people like that, sort of send a message and then get the party in line. But I, I do think that he may he may be looking at the failure of the legislative agenda so far and the fact that as he has privately been complaining that – Republicans really haven't shut down the Russia investigation. They are trying to let that investigation continue. And so I think Trump may be looking at that and saying, well, what use are these uh, congressional majorities to me anyway? When, uh, But in fact, if he loses a majority in either house, he will probably soon get the realization that things could get much worse for him. But, but also, I mean, members of Congress have their own sort of like long games to play right i mean tara the, i mean you you've talked a, a lot to sort of leaders in the in the freedom caucus in the house who i don't know like they were around before donald trump they have their like internal beefs with paul ryan and and with other things like that and you know necessarily i think have to be looking beyond like any given sort of sort of news cycle or or even election cycle and you know what are they trying to sort of 
position themselves in this in this factional fighting. I mean, I think they just see this time as an opportunity where they have developed this close relationship with the president and the White House um, that the president seems more willing to listen to their ideas um, than leadership is. And so and so they're pivoting to an extent to the wall, right, as a as like. A, a core demand, right? They're trying to be like Trump's guys on this on this wall funding issue. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. It, so it seems like um, I, I had a conversation with Mark Meadows this morning, and uh, they're not like coming out for or against shutting down the government over this. Um, they are they are definitely like border security is among their top five priorities. Uh, for for like the arch conservative faction of the house, um, and and they go very far lengths to support the president, whatever the president wants to say. And right now, it seems like the the border wall is is Trump's like main push again with healthcare kind of on the rocks, and who knows what's happening with tax reform. So what's happening now is that mostly through coincidence, this big debt ceiling fight. Uh, is coming in September at the same time as a fight over funding the government. So we we talked through the debt ceiling fight already, and in that in that case, you know, I, I'm predisposed to think that we're not going to hit the debt ceiling. It, it it might be ugly getting to the point where they can actually raise it, but it it would cost too much to uh, to hit the debt ceiling for I, I think for Democrats to um, to want to really wage a fight over this but shutting down the government is a little different uh, that is where Trump wants to make his demands to get a lot of border wall funding and that is where I think Matt was talking earlier about you know how a, a couple of ambitious Democrats could throw this thing into chaos I, I think the government funding fight and not the debt ceiling fight is where we're more likely to see that where, you know, Republicans are trying to deliver Trump some sort of face saving thing that he can call a victory on money for his wall in the government funding bill. And Democrats will be looking for a way to position themselves as against this because uh, the wall just has always been so core to Trump's political brand and uh, and that they're really hoping to deal him a defeat on that. I think it's really important to look at the timeline here, right? So as Andrew said, the debt ceiling deadline is uh, the same time as the spending bills deadline. Um, and already we've seen, so the Speaker of the House and a lot of members are saying we're going to pass a continuing resolution to kind of give us some more time to deal with the spending bills, which would basically just fund the government at standard levels. And then they'll have more time to negotiate spending bills because they that like the debt ceiling will also need Democrats on board. And it's always kind of this big down to the wire negotiation. Um, but in that timeline, you see a really interesting dynamic, which Trump is probably going to get really angry about eventually, whereas so, yeah, if you pass a CR in September 30th, the continuing resolution, let's say you delay it by four months um, and then 
you have another debate in in December or, or January about this, then it's 2018. And then it's an election year. And there's a reason where Mitch McConnell and Speaker Ryan can say, oh, okay, well, it's an election year. Maybe we shouldn't shut down the government right now over a border wall over $1.6 billion for this border wall that not a lot of people seem to want. Um, and like, if we're seeing Trump get mad now, if he realizes that that's going to be happening down the line. Yeah, I think uh, it the reason why a government shutdown is easier to imagine is because, of course, that it did happen in 2013 when Republicans demanded that – conservative Republicans demanded that Obamacare be defunded in any government funding bill. Democrats didn't want to go along with it. So we had a two-week government shutdown. Uh, and I think it's notable that that happened in early October, uh, the year before the election. And so at the time when this happened, uh, Republicans were getting blamed for this shutdown. Their poll numbers plummeted. It was viewed as a political disaster for them. And then they eventually just caved and the government reopened and people moved on to other issues. And there was a full year and one month until the next election actually happened. And when that election did come about – Republicans won massive sweeping victories and took over the Senate. And so a lot of people in retrospect were like, oh, I guess shutting down the government didn't even hurt them that much. But my view is just that, you know, a whole year passed in that time. Other issues came to the forefront. And also they caved on the government shutdown. If they kept fighting and prolonged it, 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 it could have hurt them more. But but I do think that Tara's point that if this keeps if this can keeps getting kicked down the road into 2018, that's when the election is coming closer and the potential electoral consequences for a painful government shutdown will also be closer. So it, it might be better for all parties to have this fight and kind of get it out of their system now. Lyft, uh, you, you guys probably know know all about Lyft. Uh, Lyft is the ride-sharing company that knows that their drivers are what keep them moving, so they do everything that they can to make sure their drivers are happy on every trip. It's a pretty simple formula. Happy drivers mean happy customers. That's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating. Uh, as a Lyft driver, you can earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips. Want to earn more money? Drive even more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. Uh, Lyft was the first ride-sharing platform with tipping built right into the app. Uh, getting tipped, you know, it shouldn't depend on your, your past are having crumples of bills in their pockets. That's why they built it as part of their software platform. As a driver, you keep 100% of the tips and they add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. And with Express Pay, you get paid almost instantly instead of waiting weeks and weeks to actually get the money you're owed. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. Uh, so join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash weeds today and you get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lift.com slash weeds, lift.com slash weeds. Limited time offer. Terms do apply. If you like listening to the weeds in your headphones, you're going to love listening to the weeds live and in person. Uh, and if if you are interested in that, I've got some great news for you because we're bringing the show to the Now Hear This podcast festival in New York City this September. It's a great value. Uh, one ticket gets you access to all 25 live shows throughout the weekend. So not just us, uh, a huge plethora of great podcasts are, are doing performances. So go to nowhearthisfest.com to get your tickets and your promo code weeds for $20 off. That's nowhearthisfest.com fest.com promo code weeds
I guess if if I was advising Republican congressional leaders, I would be inclined to say like like let's give Trump his wall shut down in September, you know, because either maybe we're wrong, like maybe it'll work out great for them and they'll get a wall built. I mean, who knows? Or maybe it'll be a disaster and they'll have to cave. But either way, it's like it's so far from election day that like that would be an opportune moment to have something politically. It's a good time to do something risky, right? If you have like a kind of crazy notion that you think will accomplish something important, maybe, or also might be a huge embarrassing disaster, um, like the fall of the odd numbered year is a pretty good time to do it. It would be, uh, it would make Ed Gillespie very sad, I think, trying to, trying to win his governor's race in Virginia. But other than that, there's like not a lot concrete at stake right now. So it's as, as good a time as any to sort of throw the dice. But at least the, the Democrats I've spoken to on the Hill pretty much all anticipate that this will end up getting just like fudged a little bit in the short term with some kind of, you know, maybe it's six weeks, maybe it's a month, um, CR rather than like an actual September showdown. Uh, I don't know if that's, if that's true or not. Uh, but yeah, that, I'm hearing for a four month CR. Four months, even yeah. better. Um, and that's where you do start to get into the, get into the danger zone, right? I mean, the more you sort of CR this, the more like you're going to say, okay, are, is the core issue of the 2018 midterms going to be a wall induced government shutdown, uh, which is probably fine for some, uh, challenger. Republican Senate candidates. Uh, if you're running against Joe Manchin in West Virginia, you would probably rather be talking about a sort of goofball wall building scheme than uh, Medicaid cuts. Uh, but I think it would be a really bad look for vulnerable House Republicans uh, to be dealing with with this kind of uh, wall shenanigans. Uh, but the fact that that's Trump's points of emphasis, right? The other story we had this week was, well, the White House isn't going to do a tax reform plan after all. And it's become sort of conventional to rattle off like the Trump agenda and then do these sort of items that are pulled from Paul Ryan's agenda, like healthcare, tax reform. But, but you see more and more that Trump is obviously on board with signing some kind of tax cut bill, but he's not like interested in the tax bill or its details or going to be involved in drafting it or anything like that. Whereas they're quite engaged with the wall, you know, for whatever it's worth. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has actually done a lot of work along these lines. Uh, Donald Trump managed to sort of finesse the conceptual ambiguity between a wall and a fence and the Border Patrol's desire for it to be see-through. He came up with this funny, weird line about throwing bags of heroin, but it like it's accurate that the Border Patrol personnel don't want it to be a solid wall. Trump has accepted that technical recommendation from them, reformulated his plan. Uh, whereas on on taxes, which is like the main thing the Republican Party has been about for a generation or two, it's like totally out to lunch. Like there were stories on Tuesday, people were trying to say like, aha, the big six have come up with details and, and parameters for plan. And like the parameters didn't include the amount of money involved, the tax rates, like anything. Um, I, I guess I believe congressional Republicans will come up with a tax cut plan, but it, it, there seems to be, you know, real lack of substantive White House engagement on what we're accustomed to thinking of as like the big questions of American politics. 
And I think that's um, that's that is one reason why Trump seems to be more dangerous to congressional Republicans than he is to them. If he really, really wanted and and deeply, deeply uh, desired a big tax cut bill, and he cared about all of those details, then he really needs to keep his relationships with Republicans on the Hill as good as possible. He really needs a savvy legislative affairs team to sort of work them over, to push for his specific priorities and and so on. This this is what past presidents have done. It seems that Trump really wants to sign something that is a tax cut bill, but he really just does not care about the details in any way, shape, or form. So if that's the case, then he seems to be uh, – he seems to have more reason to just sort of yell at Republicans for not passing a bill. Like all he wants is a bill to pass. He doesn't care what he – what it says or what it does. And so – And this process makes it harder for Republicans to pass a bill in the first place, right? Well, yeah. It's, so. it's, it's not exactly – well, I don't know. Um <laughs> Well, I mean, when he I was pushing for health care, uh, it, it failed initially in the House when he kept tweeting that Republicans should do it. But then when they did fail, they got kind of embarrassed and, and went to the table and, and came up with some sort of deal and got it through the House. Then, of course, it failed in the Senate. But I, I, I mean, I think they do feel this real pressure to get something done and to not be viewed as failures. But – you know, Trump has sort of proven that he's willing to go so off message to disregard the uh, potential risks of dividing the party in advance of the 2018 midterms that um, that they really do have an incentive to try to stay on his good side and do what he wants because he could just do them so much damage next year by by just his own rants and tweets and going off message. Like, why would you, as a Republican base voter who likes Donald Trump, turn out to vote in 2018 if Donald Trump keeps complaining that the Republicans in Congress are, you know, useless and, and not advancing his agenda and um, and have failed? I mean, that seems to be a situation where you would probably just stay home. And, and you know, when there's a there's just a, an opportunity costs thing in terms of the conservative policy agenda. I think that the Trump era has uh, led a lot of people to dust off some various political science concepts. And, and one that, that I always like is the uh, uh, thermostatic public opinion, uh, where the idea is basically, you know, when a Republican's in the White House, that tends to push the public's views of things to the left. They start to worry more that, well, we, we got to do more to take care of the poor and to protect the environment. Whereas when a Democrat's in office, public opinion swings to the right and they say, uh, we got to, you know, let business, you know, do its thing, focus on, on economic growth. And from what little we can tell from seven months, that is in effect, right? That with Trump in the White House, the level of public concern about the environment and climate change is spiking. Uh, the level of public support for the Affordable Care Act and for government guarantees of, of health insurance is, is going up. Uh, the flip side of that is that after you take power, you get to govern the country. And, you know, Trump is clearly moving the policy status quo to the right. But an important question for 
conservative true believers is are they moving public policy enough and in sufficiently enduring ways to compensate for the sort of inevitable erosion of electoral power and public opinion that that you get in. Like it seems clear now that between S-chip expansion and the Affordable Care Act that whatever it is Republicans end up doing to sort of erode that stuff, there's going to be more government health care after the Obama and then Trump cycle than there was before that sort of back and forth, right? Even on on environmental regulation, it, it looks like Trump is going to undo a lot of what Obama did, but almost certainly not all of it, right? And so what kind of enduring markers are they going to be able to put in? Uh, there's a reason that the ACA repeal bills had these huge structural changes to Medicaid, right? And it's that, that would do that. That would actually move the policy needle you know, in a semi-permanent way, in a more conservative direction. And it's now becoming unclear that they have much sort of like left in the in the quiver that that's really going to do that, right? It's like, what are you going to get done, not just in terms of sort of short-term regulatory state favorable to business things, but long-term, you know, reshaping of, of American ideological landscape? That didn't seem like the kind of thing Donald Trump is like that. Uh, intellectually invested in, if he is invested in it, it's probably on the immigration front rather than on the, you know, sort of fiscal policy and, and budget type sides. And, you know, congressional Republicans who do care about these issues have sort of time pressure to like, while Trump is in office, while they have these big majorities, while Trump is certainly willing to sign bills that they pass, even if he's not engaged with the particulars of them, it's like, what can they do that's going to be like their monuments to eternity? All right, should we end with that? Yeah, we can end with that. Awesome. <laughs> I, have no, I have nothing to fall out of. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, well... Thanks for listening to another episode of The Weeds on the uh, Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, thanks to Tara and Andrew for joining us. Thanks to our uh, producer, Bert Pinkerton, uh, engineer, Riyadh Shawi. And uh, we will see you next week. Bye.